0: Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. An award-winning professor in the University of Michigan's top-ranked psychology department and its Ross School of Business. Dr. Cross is the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He's participated in policy discussions at the White House. He's been interviewed on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, and NPR's Morning Edition. His pioneering research has been featured in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the New England Journal of Medicine and Science. He completed his B.A. at the University of Pennsylvania and his Ph.D. at Columbia University. This is Ethan's first book titled Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. Today on the program, Ethan and I will talk about some excellent tools inside the book to help us harness chatter. I'm excited to dig in on another episode of the Burleson Box.
1: When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stax are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stax has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving.
0: I'm so honored to have on the program today, Dr. Ethan Crose. Thank, thank you for being here, Ethan. And I want to talk about your new book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me. been looking forward to this conversation.
0: Tell us a little bit, bring us up to speed because this book is brilliant, but there are decades of research you've been doing leading up to this. Can you tell us a little bit about your lab and the research you do at the University of Michigan?
2: Sure. I run a lab here called the Emotion and Self-Control Lab. And what we do in the lab is try to address um, two kinds of issues. One, what are the nuts and bolts that allow a person to control themselves, to exert self-control? And I use that term pretty broadly to refer to an individual's ability to align their thoughts, feelings, or behaviors with their goals. So said more simply, if you want to think a certain way or feel a certain way or behave a certain way, how can you do it? And so we spend a lot of time looking at the brain, looking at behavior to figure out how to make self-control possible. Then the other thing we do is once we have a fairly good understanding about how people can exert control over some facet of their lives, um, <clears throat> we try to look at how we can take that information and translate it to improve people's ability to actually exert self-control outside of the lab in daily life. Um, and, and trying to address those two issues um, keeps us really busy.
0: Yeah, I was looking at, I mean, the book is so well referenced and researched. and It's why we love it. It's not just someone's opinion. It's based on data. And uh, it's, I, I told you leading into this, I couldn't put the book down. That's not a cliche. I, I literally, I had to use one of your techniques actually, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I'm usually in bed by like 9 or 9.30, and I'm just tearing through your book. And I had to say, like, Dustin, go to bed, put the book
2: down. <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. But I think, you, you, you know, you touch on a really important issue. And, and actually, it wasn't until the publication of this book that, um, that I really realized just how, how much opinion is out there as opposed to work based on science. And as many of your listeners will know, you know, science itself is imperfect uh, it is always we 're always doing more work, learning more revising refining, but I think basing our our suggestions on a firm empirical foundation is really the route to to figuring things out, and as I touch on in the book, when I talk about a few misconceptions about how to manage the voice in our head, like whether venting is actually useful. Uh, sometimes opinions can really lead us astray um, and and in some cases with really negative ramifications.
0: Yeah, I I really want to get to the broad applicability of it because I know our listeners can take a lot away. It's what, it's what I took away from the book is this isn't just something to put on the shelf, but something to put to use in your day to day life. Um, you share some great stories throughout the book. One is about your father growing up and him really encouraging you to use introspection. Can you talk about kind of both sides of that coin?
2: Yeah, from the time I was a, a young kid around three, my dad used to tell me to quote unquote go inside whenever I experienced a difficulty. Um, a difficulty when I was the age of three usually meant not getting extra dessert. But <laughs> but as I got older, the the difficulties changed and his instruction to introspect really ended up being a very valuable tool for me. So you know, I'd ask a girl out on a date, she'd say no. I'd go inside, try to figure out why I was feeling the way I did. I'd come up with a solution. I'd move on. I would never get stuck. I'd ask the girl out again. That process, unfortunately, repeated several times um, in high school. Uh, But then I got to college, and I took my first psychology class. And about halfway through the semester, we got to this topic of introspection that I had spent so much time talking to my dad about growing up and personally benefiting from. And what I learned once we dug into the science during that class was, on the one hand, there were lots of people who were benefiting from introspection, just like I had, just like my dad told me I would. But there seemed to be an equal number of individuals who were really victimized by introspecting. So people would experience problems in their lives, problems in their relationships, problems with their health, problems with the world, problems with their kids, and they would reflexively turn their attention and inward to work through those problems, but they wouldn't come up with clear solutions. Instead, they'd start spinning. They'd start ruminating and worrying and catastrophizing, uh, experiencing what I call chatter. And And this was a tremendous problem for them. It was a, an issue that interfered with their ability to think and perform. It was an issue that created problems in their relationships and, and even damaged their health. And so For me, this became a giant puzzle. When I took a step back and just thought about this space, I was perplexed as to why it is that we have this remarkable capacity to use our mind to solve problems. I mean, think about what life would be like without our ability to turn our attention inward, to introspect. We wouldn't have skyscrapers. We wouldn't have spaceships that blast us off into Mars. We wouldn't have vaccines to help us deal with pandemics, right? This capacity is central to human innovation and creativity, yet this very tool often creates an enormous amount of suffering. So why does that happen? Why does this capacity sometimes help us, sometimes hurt us? And when it hurts us, what can we do to regain control over it? That became um, a real passion that I found myself thinking about when i wasn't in psychology class, I remember uh, walking around on campus <clears throat> at college it was a Friday was a Saturday night I was walking with my friends and it was like eleven o 'clock at night we were getting ready to go to the bar and I was talking to my friends about this and they looked at me and they go what 's wrong with you? Why are you <laughs> talking about this now?" and um, at some point, I realized that if I was spending my Saturday nights thinking about this when I probably should have been thinking about other things. Uh, that might not be a, a bad way to spend my career trying to study this issue.
0: And you really have come across some pretty amazing findings. I know one I'd love for you to share that really launched you into the national spotlight. You're in Good Morning America. Uh, that was involving people I think in New York City that had recently gone through a breakup.
2: Yeah, one of the one, an interesting um, early study we did was we're trying to look at uh, what are some of the What are are some of the issues that people experience the most intense chatter about? And and just to be clear for listeners, when I use the term chatter, I use that term to refer to getting stuck in a negative thought loop. So if it's a negative thought loop about the future, we tend to call that worry. If it's a negative thought loop about the past or even the present, we call that rumination. Um, Psychologists are great at coming up with lots of different terms to refer to very similar processes, and and chatter is really a catch-all to get at all that. When when I started to think about well, what do people experience intense chatter about, getting rejected, social rejection was a really um, prime candidate for a kind of experience that elicited intense chatter. And what was interesting about um, social rejection is you actually hear a lot of people when they describe how they feel after being dumped or excluded, they interestingly use the language of physical pain to describe how they feel. They don't just say, oh, I'm feeling really bad. They say I'm. My feelings are hurt. I'm in pain. I'm. I'm hurting right now. And and so that got us thinking. Um, does the experience of, of quote unquote social pain overlap in some interesting way with our experiences of physical pain? Um, are you know? It, it, are people just using? The language of, of physical pain is a kind of metaphor to describe how they feel, or is there some actual link between the two? And so, what we did in brief during this study is we recruited people around New York City who had just been dumped in a serious romantic relationship. We screened them to ensure they still felt deeply rejected every time they thought about that experience. And then we recruited them for a brain imaging study. And what we did in the imaging study was two things. First, we had them look at a picture of the person who rejected them. And each time they looked at that picture, we had them think about how they felt during the instant that they were rejected. Um, I, I suspect you're probably around my, my vintage. So um, maybe you'll remember looking at a photo album, a physical photo album, yes, than this, one on iPhotos. Uh, this is true of iPhotos too. When you look at a picture of someone who dumped you and it's still raw, that is a powerful elicitor of, you know, the negative feelings. And so So we did that while we were scanning brain activity. And then the other thing we did during the study is we actually led people to experience physical pain. And we did this by attaching a little device to participants' forearms that heated up to a hot temperature. Now, it didn't burn anyone, just to be clear. I'll say that again. We did not burn anyone. (laughs) Uh, But um, the the, the sensation that we elicited was akin to holding a, a hot cup of coffee from Starbucks, as soon as it's poured, but without having that protective sleeve. So it it hurts. It's painful. You put it down, but it doesn't elicit a, um, you know, any, any lingering um, scars and uh, get to the bottom of the, of the study. What we find at the end when we crunch the numbers is that when you look at the neural snapshot of physical pain and social pain, turns out that they overlap in really interesting ways that when you're experiencing social pain, uh, parts of your brain that are involved in, in physical pain sensation are also activated. And so the findings from that study um, at the time gave new meaning to the idea that, that our, you know when we, we use the language of physical pain, say our feelings hurt, people may actually be referring to physical sensations in their body.
0: It's amazing. I think the, the listeners will really enjoy getting into the book because it goes down to the cel- cellular level, right? I mean, this is not just you know, something in our head. This is our entire body.
2: Yeah. You know, it, it's really, it's really interesting. So when you deal with a topic like chatter, I think it's very easy to dismiss this. Ah, you know, some, you're worried about something else and it's something trivial and just a little part of life. But in fact, the research that's out there is really phenomenal. And it, it does, as you say, it goes incredibly deep. Um, some of my favorite work that I touch on very briefly uh, talks about how chatter gets under the skin not only in terms of explaining how how stress reactions predict things like cardiovascular disease and certain forms of cancer, um, you know we lots of people think that stress kills, and I often joke that that's not actually true because a stress reaction is an incredibly useful biological response. you would not want to live life without the ability to quickly approach or avoid a threat in your environment. What makes stress toxic is when it's prolonged. And that's what chatter does because we experience something in the world and then we keep replaying it over and over in our minds. And that keeps our stress response active, which leads to those negative physical health problems. But some of the more recent work has taken that even further and looked at how the experience of chatter influence how our genes are expressed. Uh, So some some listeners may have learned, like I did, and I'm guessing you did as well in college, that genes and environment are separate influences on who we are and our behavior. But what we've learned more recently is that they interact in really interesting and profound ways. This is the study of epigenetics, how, how our experiences in the world influence how our genes are expressed. And what some work has shown is that experiencing chatter in the form of prolonged stress, what that does is it turns on certain sets of genes that are involved in generating inflammatory responses. And it turns off certain genes that are involved in um, producing antiviral reactions. So you have this situation of your mind is chattering away. And that's turning on the inflammation response, and it's turning off the fight viruses response. This is not a good formula for well being and, and physical health, and and it just shows you the depths to which chatter is linked.
0: Yeah, it's brilliantly referenced in the book. So I, I highly encourage everyone to get through that section, and it was a very eye opening. I mean, I knew some of the physiological, like cardiovascular, you know components of it, but down to the DNA was really fascinating for me. I really appreciated that. Um, I want to kind of continue this chatter in the future. I think most of us, when I think about chatter, we might be anxious and kind of in this loop on something coming up. Maybe if you're in residency listening to this, maybe it's your board exam or about the past, maybe something that you regret that you could have done differently. And so there's a lot of bad advice out there telling people to live in the moment, live in the moment. But in the book, you talk about how that actually runs counter to our biology. Can you share a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, happy to. Um, you know, this is one of those myths out that are out there that you should always be in the moment. Um, and I think it it it's well. Let me back up. So we often hear that we should be in the moment and if we find our mind our mind wandering to the to the future or past that that's a bad thing in fact a fundamental feature of the human mind is that it is capable of traveling through time and this is an amazing capacity it is a capacity that distinguishes us from other animal species think about whether you use the example of of the boards and people studying for the boards i mean Think about what, what, if that's you listening, think about what your life would be like if you couldn't plan for the future, if you couldn't reflect on your past experiences in the classroom or during training to inform how you answer questions even on on that exam. Um, When I think about traveling in time in my mind, it often provides me with really valuable experiences. A couple of weeks ago, I went on my first family vacation since COVID began we went to the beach. Uh, Interestingly enough, when we left for the the beach, it looked like we were out of of this mess. Three days later, the world decided to get very sick again. It was a little uh, upsetting. But the experience we had at the beach was wonderful. And I find myself savoring it right now. I think back when I'm taking walks around gray and snowy Ann Arbor about going paddleboarding with my daughters. That's an enormous source of gratification. I'm also thinking about what lies ahead a couple of months from now when I have a few trips planned that I'm really excited about. I'm not just thinking about those trips, fantasizing about how fun they're going to be. I'm also planning for the trips. I'm thinking about the audiences I'm going to interact with and how I'm going to engage with them differently from audiences of the past and how I'm going to learn from things that worked versus didn't work in previous presentations to do my next ones even better. So, this capacity to flexibly travel in time in our mind, this is a huge asset. You would not want to give it up. Now, it is, it is accurate that oftentimes this mental time travel machine that we possess, it breaks down. We get stuck fixating on the past or the future. And those are certainly instances in which we want to intervene. And in fact, the bulk of my book talks about how to do that. Now, refocusing your attention on the moment, that's one way to intervene, but it is far from the only way. There are close to over two dozen different tools that don't involve doing that that are also very effective. So I would love if we could get to a point where we think about recalibrating our attention on the moment as just one tool amidst a much larger toolbox that we have access to for managing the voice in our head when it goes astray
0: i found the section of the book on this capacity of working memory to go i mean you think about all the great things that have been invented right if you're we just living in the moment what are the odds the iphone just you know falls out of the sky you know, like you have to think about
2: yeah i mean you could take you could take it even further you know like so think to yourself in the animal kingdom who lives in the moment well, most most you know animals that don't have a prefrontal cortex. Yep. So, so like being totally in the in the moment would mean succumbing to the the temptation. You know, okay, are you gonna you, you go to a party or or you someone asks, hey, you want to go to a party right now? Yes, I'm going to go yes. to a party, <laughs> even though you got to study for the test next week. You know, it's just such an overcorrection, which we see happen time and again when we try to take. Complicated ideas from um, from science, from philosophy, from religion. You know, if you look back to the some of the original sources that med- that, that this idea of being in the moment emerged from Eastern philosophical traditions, um, they're much more nuanced in how they talk about this. But the way this this information has been disseminated in Western culture, it's been so oversimplified that. It actually becomes, I think, problematic. And and one one goal I had in writing Chatter was to take what we know from science um, and present it in a way that is accessible, but also that uh, properly reflects what we know about the human mind. Not oversimplify it to the point that it ceases to become useful.
0: That's fantastic. And um, if we have time, in the book you share, a really powerful story about the inner voice. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I'm curious if we have time to talk a little bit about Dr. Joe Bolte Taylor.
2: Yeah, we should, if we don't have time, let's make it. I mean, it's arguably, <clears throat> I think one of the most important stories in the book because, you know, I talk to a lot of people about their inner voice and, and, and most of the time I talk to them, it's not talking about how their inner voice benefits them. Um, there's a general, um, Mantra in in psychology and, and, and the cognitive science is that bad is stronger than good. Most of the time, when you know people are people, we devote much more attention to things that are going wrong, not right. And so, um, when many people are are stuck in chatter, the thing that they reflexively ask me is, "How can I get rid of this voice in my head? How can I shut it up? Because I don't like it. It's causing me enormous suffering." And my, my response is often, you don't want to shut the voice down. You want to figure out how to harness it because it has all these positive features, some of which we've hinted at in this conversation. But one of the most powerful ana- pieces of anecdotal evidence that speaks to this issue is Jill Bull Taylor's story. So Jill, Jill Bull Taylor was a, a Harvard neuroanatomist uh, working at the very peak of, of, of her career and like so many of us, she experienced chatter at times that was deeply unsettling, and she would often think to herself, how can I just shut this voice up? And She had an interesting experience where she got that wish. She was exercising on a treadmill one morning and before work, and while she was exercising, she suffered a major stroke that was localized in the left hemisphere of her brain. And what the stroke did is it temporarily disabled her ability to use language. It disabled her ability to use language, not only to talk to other people, but also to talk to herself. And whenever I think about her story, I, I, I find it really perplexing because if I step back and think to myself, hey, what would it be like to not be able to talk to myself? I, I don't have, to. sorry for the Um, The the cheesy phrase here. I don't have words to describe that. You see what I mean? It's what would happen if you went to the grocery store and couldn't rehearse in your mind what was on your grocery list? It'd be really hard to imagine what life was like. Well, she tells us what life was like. So initially she describes her experience not being able to talk to herself, not having an inner voice as, as strangely euphoric. Because once the words left her, so did all the worries, so did all the ruminations. But as the hours and days went on, that experience transformed because um, although the worries had had, had washed away, uh, so did a lot of other very basic capacities, she lost her ability to activate her working memory system in the way that it's designed to be activated. So what working memory refers to is our ability to keep information active in our heads. For short periods of time, so if I were to ask you to memorize a phone repeat a phone number in your head two oh nine oh five oh one that 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 involves you using your working memory and the voice in your head. she couldn't do that she couldn't use her inner voice to um, to plan for the future before you give a talk and go on an interview. Many people rehearse what they're gonna say she couldn't do that she couldn't use her inner voice to motivate herself when I'm exercising I regularly use my inner voice all right. 9, nine, eight, I'm in pain. Seven, six, five, <laughs> stop it. That's your inner voice coaching you along. She couldn't activate her inner voice to do that. And perhaps most dis- disabling, she couldn't use her inner voice to create stories, to explain what she was going through, which we all do at times, right? We experience events in our lives and we ask ourselves, hey, why did it happen? Why did they say that? What did they do? And we use that voice in order to create those stories. She couldn't do that. So... Um, so her experience was, was really powerful for, for conveying that, look, chatter is a serious problem. I've devoted my career to figuring out how to help people manage it. You want to have tools to manage it, but managing your chatter doesn't involve getting rid of your inner voice. It doesn't involve shutting it up or silencing it. It involves harnessing it. It involves figuring out how you can skillfully regain control of your inner voice to allow it to do all the wonderful things that it evolved to do.
0: I want to get to some of those tools in a minute. I want to keep setting up the stage because it's so powerful. And that story really impacted me because there are times when you think, geez, I just, you know, I need to go for a walk or I need to do some meditation to just tone down the chatter. But it's so helpful if you learn how to harness it, as you mentioned. Um, can we talk a little bit about, because I think this will help the listeners, our inner voice and how that plays into attention and the the tendency for what we call analysis paralysis. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think the the easiest way to describe analysis um, oh analysis paralysis. Okay, um, I was I was thinking about something else. Um, so analysis para- an paralysis by analysis um, uh, reflects the common experience of overthinking things. And it can become particularly problematic when you're executing a, a habit, a, a well-worn set of behaviors that has become automated over time. And I think this is, I'm, I'm guessing, certainly true of many of the procedures that folks listening perform. Yes. Is that, is that accurate? Fair? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, lots of things we do. We, we do them without thinking. When I'm, when I'm, you know, giving a speech, I, I've given, you know, hundreds, thousands of presentations over the course of my career, I'm not thinking really carefully about how to undulate my vocal tone or, (laughs) you know, whether I'm sufficiently pacing on stage or, you know, am I moving my hands too much? I'm just doing all of those things in a way that my experiences have, have, have put me in a position to do without thinking. When we experience chatter about some of the behaviors we're performing, like let's say I'm experiencing chatter. Oh my God, am I going to give a good speech? What ends up happening is our chatter zooms us in on the thing that we're concerned about. And when we zoom in on it, we start thinking about the individual components. And once we do that, the whole behavior explodes. Um, You know, funny, funny aside, I've, I've used my own behavior in public speaking to demonstrate this point uh, while I'm giving a public speech and that doesn't always work so well. Um, but you know the, the idea is if you, let's say you're performing an operation, right? Like what's a common procedure that you perform?
0: Could do uh placement of surgical implants or, or something involving it taking a tooth out for
2: example. okay so i i have experience for both of these so uh, <laughs> with both of these um i'm sorry so, <laughs> yeah I, I am too um, <laughs> yeah. um So, you know, you you know, are you thinking really carefully? Like, is my, is the pressure I'm placing on the scalpel while I'm, 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 I'm making an incision here sufficient. Am I squeezing the scalpel too, too tight? Like my guess is you're probably not thinking, am I squeezing the scalpel too tight? Is that a fair (laughs) assumption?
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: But if you start doing that, you lose sight of the bigger picture and that can be really, really damaging. You see this playing out all the time in professional sports. Simone Biles is the most recent powerful example just this past summer. Simone Biles dropped out of the, the Olympics, the pinnacle of her career um, for what she called the twisties. The twisties is, is another name for chatter. It's often called the yips as well. But the reason she she dropped out was because she got stuck experiencing this, this, this chatter. And what it would lead her to do is as she's performing one of these superhuman feats twisting in the air four times as she somersaults and twists. She'd start thinking about, hey, am I moving enough? And Do I have enough momentum and velocity? Blah, blah, blah. And, and that ends up becoming dangerous for her because once you start thinking about the individual pieces of the behavior, the whole behavior unravels. Um, so that's one way that chatter can sink us.
0: Now, a quick word from our sponsor. <music>
1: trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already-burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners you need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices, with more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.
0: And now, back to the program. And then the solution, I'm going to talk about zooming out. I was laughing so hard, I told my fiancé, this was years ago. I'm curious to see your reaction. I had been up late. We'd started a new business. We had like no patience. I mean, just high stress, high chatter. And one night before I'm flying to go give a talk somewhere uh, on stage, I'm obsessing over which side of the computer to put my phone on in my office. And I'm trying to figure out where to drill the hole because I'm there's no money. So I'm the IT guy. And I just left it. And I was it was so late at night. And I went home and I flew out of Kansas City. I've never flown in this flight path. We flew directly over my office. It was just happenstance. I'm in a window seat and I'm looking down at the entire development where my practice is, and it's like a teeny tiny dot, you know, on this vast sea of like farmland and cityscape, and I just started laughing. I'm like, where I put that phone does not matter. I physically had the experience of zooming out. <laughs> in I,
2: an I, love, I love that example. I think maybe yeah. I'll use that in, 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 if you don't mind. Um, uh, that's that's a powerful example, and it's exactly the 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 it, it it demonstrates the point so I think powerfully, which is. What chatter does is is it zooms us in on our problems. We focus on them so narrowly that we can't think of anything else. And when we do that, we often lose sight of the bigger picture. And when we zoom out and focus on the bigger picture, what happens is that often helps us put things in perspective and find solutions that actually help us deal with the chatter. Um, So many people experience exactly what you describe, right? You start flipping out over that one email, which in the grand scheme of things probably means nothing or will blow over, but you can't stop thinking about it. And what we've learned is that there are a variety of tools that people can use to zoom out from their experience. Um, you did it physically which isn't always possible uh, i suppose <laughs> if you haven't got a private jet or sh- space shuttle <laughs> you could um, but but what i've really found amazing remarkable is that how many different tools exist for zooming out um you know just to rattle off a few um, <clears throat> at at one end of the spectrum uh, you know you could you you could use your environment to zoom out as you did in your experience and, and one way to do this is to find opportunities to experience the emotion of awe awe is an emotion that we experience when we're in the presence of something vast and indescribable like an amazing sunset or uh, for me i experience awe everything i every time i think about um, air travel i experience awe i travel all the time or i used to before covid and it still it still amazes me that you know not too long ago we sat around you know pieces of wood and stone struggling to start fires and and now we have figured out how to safely blast people off the ground and you know halfway across the planet and safely land them. like how did we figure out how to do that that i i'm filled with the, the emotion of awe when i think about that um what we know from the science is that when you experience awe that leads to something that we call a shrinking of the self you feel smaller when you contemplate something vast and indescribable, like here I am worrying about this email that someone sent me yesterday, but, you know, people discovered how to fly and, and, and terraform, you know, transform the the planet. Like this is so insignificant. And, and so when you feel smaller, so does your chatter. So that's one way of broadening your perspective, but there are lots and lots of other ways of doing it too. And, And just to go to the totally opposite end of the spectrum the most one of the most simplest tools that are out there uh, involves doing something you talked about earlier um, when you were trying to put your book down before bed, which is you use your own name to um, to coach yourself through a situation right One of the things we know is that it's much easier to give advice to other people than it is to follow our own advice. Um, the reason for that is, other, you know, what's happening to other people, we have distance from their problems. We are effectively zoomed out because it's not happening to us. And what we've learned is that using your name can help shift your perspective. It can help you zoom out because when you use your own name to try to work through your chat, all right, Ethan, how are you going to manage a situation? That leads you to start thinking about yourself like we think about others, and and that can be also another useful zoom out tool. But those are just two of probably a dozen that I talk about in the book, um, and um, you know different zoom out tools work for different people. So
0: yeah, I love the the the, the experience of awe. I went and changed a lot of my. Uh computer desktop backgrounds to like really majestic like Yellowstone National Park type scenes it's way more to me it'll it gives me a moment of kind of zooming out as opposed to just a blue background that has a logo on it or something
2: yes well and you know that that's another thing um so some people ask well hey I, I live in a in, in a in a in a in 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 an environment that is not awe-inspiring, or it's really cold, like it is where I live right now, and I can't get out. Um, there's research which suggests that you can benefit from from awe, uh, exactly as you're doing. Change your screensaver. You know, put pictures on the wall that um, elicit that experience. Think about memories of experience. You know, I think about like one of my daughters um, did her first performance in community theater recently, and you know, here's a doting dad, but like it was amazing. I was, It was awe-inspiring to see what she did without any help from her parents. I think about that, and that fills me with awe. And so a broader theme of the book is that the experience of chatter is, is really complicated, as we talked about before. It affects us all the way down to how our cells and our genes work. Um, there's been an enormous amount of money and science, like complex science that has gone into figuring out different tools that exist for helping us manage that chatter. But at the end of the day, a lot of the tools that we've unearthed are, are really simple to execute. And I think the biggest challenge we face is just illuminating those tools for people so that they know what to do when they're experiencing chatter. So they don't have to just aimlessly stumble along trying to figure out what to do. But the moment they sense the chatter brewing, they've got Uh, a three or four or seven step intervention waiting for them to implement in a few minutes. I think that's the real, that's the real potential that, um, that the science gives us. And, you know, it's something I will say that I benefit from myself. People often ask, Hey, you know, you study chatter, do you ever experience it? And I say, yeah, I'm a human being. (laughs) Um, I do at times. And, um, I don't like it, but what I'm really good at is the moment I detect the chatter beginning to brew, I instantly have a set of tools that I activate, and most of the time those tools muffle that reaction before it starts to escalate.
0: I can yeah, I can I can add that, that since reading the book, a lot of these have, have helped me as well. And I want to highlight for the listeners that everything Ethan is mentioning is in depth, backed up by really fascinating research. I'm thinking of the. The randomized um, placement of people in public housing in Chicago and whether or not their their windows faced green space or not—it's just—it's amazing how well referenced and you know backed up all the suggestions are in the book. So I just want to make sure this isn't just Ethan's opinion. <laughs> really yeah,
2: cool. no, no, I will. I'll I'll doubly emphasize that you know I'm a card carrying scientist and it is, it was and still is extremely important to me that every um, every recommendation I offered is these are science-based tools. These are not, these are not just, you know, um, anecdotal observations that I've had while working with patients. I'm actually not a a, a clinically trained um, psychologist. I'm an experimental psychologist, neuroscience. So, um, so this is a book about the science behind these tools and how that science Plays out in everyday life in interesting and sometimes surprising ways, and in in ways that ultimately give give folks tools that they can use on their own um, as well.
0: We're, the pandemic has highlighted how social we are as as humans, and that danger and that loss of connection. And you know, it's been an interesting handful of years now. Uh, I want to talk about sharing emotions with other people in the book. You talk about some really smart ways to do that. And I think back to times where I've had friends or I've been that friend who just allows the chatter to get worse. Can we, can we dig into that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the, the this is probably the biggest myth that is out there that I tried to, to to bust in the book. And the myth is that, um, that venting is really good for us. So Um, A lot of people think that when they're experiencing chatter, the thing that they want to do is find someone to express their emotions to. We're actually highly motivated to express our emotions um, when we experience them. Decades of research speak to this idea. There are a couple of exceptions. We tend to not want to talk about experiences that we're ashamed of or certain forms of trauma. But for all the other kinds of negative experiences that we have, we really want to get them out. And, um, and messaging in our culture has told us that we should do that. What we've learned though, is it's a lot more complicated than that. So there have been decades of research on, on venting. And what we have learned is this, venting about how you feel to someone else can be really good for your relationship with that person. It It's nice to know that there's someone else out there who cares enough about us that they're willing to take the time to listen. So venting can strengthen those friendship bonds And relational bonds that we share with people. But in terms of helping you actually work through and and get closure surrounding a negative experience, venting doesn't help. Uh, In fact, it often does the opposite. It just perpetuates those negative responses because what you end up doing when you vent to someone else, as you just keep on rehashing that negative experience. Oh my God, it was such a pain in the butt that person said this, and yeah, they're a real jerk. I totally, you know. And then the other person saying, "Wow, they they seem like an um, you know, you shouldn't deal with them. They, they seem terrible. They are terrible." And yeah. so you leave that conversation, and you're just as upset. Um, there's a formal name for this. It's called co-rumination, and it's a process that has been shown to predict increases in anxiety and depression. Um, uh, and anger over time. So, okay, well, what's the solution then? Uh, is a the solution to just not talk about your emotions? Absolutely not. So, what we have learned is you want to do two things when you are talking about your emotions to someone else. You do want to spend a little time at the outset conveying what happened and what you went through, it is important. For you to get that off your chest, so to speak, and for the other person to learn about what you're going through. But ideally, what happens during the conversation is at a certain point, the person you're talking to, they start trying to help broaden your perspective, right? They start trying to help you think about that bigger picture rather than just getting you to rehash your, um, your feelings over and over. So it's, it's about listening and advising and and the concrete take-homes here, I think, are really twofold when you think about how to use this information in your life. Um, the first take-home is if someone comes to you with a problem, a colleague, a friend, a loved one, um, r- remind yourself of this two-step process, right? So start off by listening and asking them, empathically just trying to connect, but then at a certain point, try to nudge them to go broad. And um, when when you should actually do that, is, is not clear based on the science. And the reason for that is it, it differs for every person in every situation. So you know, sometimes my wife will come to me with something that she's experiencing chatter about, and I'll, I'll listen. And, and at a certain point in the conversation, when I think I have an opening, I'll, I'll say to her, Totally get it. It sounds awful. Hey, can I, I have an idea. Can I give it to you? And, and sometimes the response is, No. No. <laughs> just keep listening. Listen. I don't want to hear it, you know, okay. and then she keeps going. And then I try again. At other points, I'll pose the same question. But yes, please. That's why I'm talking to you. What do you think? So there's an art to doing this well. And you want to feel that, um, feel that out. Um, the flip side is when you are the person seeking support for your chatter, think really carefully about who in your life is skilled at not just being, a, 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 a you know, that sounding board to hear you out, but that they also are adept at helping you work through those problems, helping you broaden your perspective, right? Most of us, I think when we think about the people in our life can find a few people that help us do this. You don't need a lot. Um, I've got three or four that helps me with personal stuff, personal issues, uh, maybe four or five with work-related stuff. These aren't trained clinicians. These are just socially and emotionally intelligent friends and loved ones. And so think really carefully about who your board of advisors is, so to speak, and then activate them when you need them.
0: It's really powerful. And I sent part of this chapter to a friend because like this is what you've been doing for so many years, helping me, you know, broaden and as opposed to just letting me ruminate in this kind of negative cycle of, yeah, they were so wrong and you were so right. And you leave those conversations, I think, often feeling worse than when you went into the conversation. Exactly,
2: exactly. It's it's a real conundrum. And you know what's what's so fascinating about this work is when you talk to people about it's not just that venting you should never express your emotions, right? Because we do have these strong needs and 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 because that instinct is so powerful, people initially recoil at the idea that it cannot be good for you. But but the thing to remind yourself about is that you don't want to not talk. You want to talk and do something else. And I think that's a that's not necessarily intuitive um, to lots of folks. It it wasn't to me before I stumbled on this work, um, but but it has been really powerful for me personally.
0: I want to talk about placebos and rituals. I loved some of these research designs with the karaoke and the uh, impromptu. You're going to give a speech to an audience. I love that. Can we talk about this?
2: Yeah, those are, those are really fun. Um, yeah, so let's let's start by talking about rituals and then we could talk about placebos. Uh, so one of the things we know about human beings is that most of us are, are, are control freaks. And What I mean by that is <laughs> we like to know that the world is predictable and that we have control over our circumstances. That's one of the reasons why this pandemic has been so uh, chatter-provoking for so many individuals is because we, we lack control um, and there's a high degree of uncertainty out there right now and that, that really stokes our chatter. What we've learned is that there are, are ways of, of regaining a sense of control indirectly when we feel that things, our circumstances are slipping. And a ritual is one way to do that. So, what a ritual is? A ritual is a rigid sequence of behaviors that is infused with meaning. Um, you know, every Saturday morning, I, I, you know, wake up, I exercise, I go to the farmer's market, and then I come back and um, make waffles for my kids. I do that the exact this exact same sequence every single Saturday, and it's a sequence of behaviors that is meaningful to me. It's a, it's a, it's a time to bond with my children to reset from a difficult week. Um, there's, there's nothing like magical about those three be- particular behaviors for helping me achieve my goals. It's just three things that I do the exact same way every single time that, um, that has some meaning. And what we've learned about rituals is that they can help you with your chatter by giving you a sense of Giving you a sense of control, because that that ritual that that's something that is totally under your control, and it makes you feel like you have control over your situation. So this is why you have so many athletes who, during stressful um, you know performances, they've got rituals. This is why you have people who spontaneously start organizing and cleaning when they are stressed out. Right? They are. They are creating order around them to provide them with a sense of order that they lack in their minds. There's a a fancy phrase we use to describe these kinds of strategies and what's going on. It's called exercising compensatory control. Essentially, you are compensating for not feeling control in one domain of your life, i.e. your emotions, by exercising control somewhere else. And what knowing about these these findings and, and strategies allow you to do is is just to be proactive about these things. So um, I'm not a particularly organized guy uh, when it comes to my physical surroundings, but throughout my career, I noticed in retrospect that whenever I was getting a little chatter, I would like clean up the house, put my clothing away and wash the dishes. And um this science provides a frame for understanding why I do that. And so, knowing about this science, what I now do is I will proactively clean the house if I sense chatter coming on. And, and that often helps. And it additionally makes me really popular with my wife, who I think <laughs> now secretly wishes that I chronically experience a low level of chatter. So, um, so, that's how rituals work.
0: Yeah, I was talking to my kids about this when I was reading that part of the book. And it's fascinating. Even my, my youngest is 11. And he's like, yeah, I always use the same pencil to take my test. And halfway through, I go sharpen it. Like little rituals that just give you a little sense of control and an area of uncertainty. My middle son said, yeah, when playing tennis, I always serve the ball with the Wilson logo up. And I always return the ball with the Pro Staff logo up. Like it's like, I'm like, every time is like every time. I can't
2: serve if I don't do it. That way. So, 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 I mean, I love that. And, and what's well, here, here's what I think is so powerful about knowing about the science and how this works. Lots of the, this is not true for all the tools I talk about in the book, but, but some of the tools we just stumble on, we sometimes through trial and error, figure out that doing this thing helps us. We don't know why, like I, I'm guessing your son probably didn't know why it was your son with the Wilson. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. yeah like, He probably didn't know the the psychology explaining why having the label facing up, you know, makes a difference for him, but it makes it, but it it feels right. And so he did it. Um, We've stumbled on lots of tools like that over the course of our lives. Some of the things that we've stumbled on do help us. Some of the things that we think help us actually don't like venting. That's why the science is so incredibly useful because it allows us to weed out the things that work from those that don't. And it allows us to be more agentic about how we incorporate the tools that work for us into our lives. So, you know, don't stop with the Wilson serve, develop a little ritual before you have some jitters, before you go out on your first date, right? Or, or when you have to give your, your, your opening remarks at a plenary session, have a ritual a go to that you can instantly um, connect with to help you in that situation. Knowing about this stuff allows us to be more proactive. There is one caveat I should give about rituals, which is this. Um, clearly rituals can be taken to an extreme as we see play out in the form of obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, the way I think about that is this is an instance of an individual taking a strategy that serves some really useful function and is beneficial, but taking it to an extreme. and um, There's nothing really unique about rituals in that regard that if taken to an extreme, they can be harmful. I would argue that any tool, if taken to an extreme, um, if used in the wrong context or too intensively, can be problematic. Um, Like zooming out. uh, You don't want to zoom out when you are at your kid's um, tennis match and and they're winning the game. You want to immerse yourself, zoom in and savor the delight of watching your kid perform, right? So you want to be strategic in how you
0: use these tools. That's great. Uh, I could talk to you all day. If, If we had the time, I want to wrap with an interesting observation I had kind of halfway through the book. I had the same epiphany. Your student, you share a story in the book, uh, Ariel had, and I told my fiance, why aren't we teaching this to every sixth grader in America? Well, I had to finish the book because it turns out, uh, you're trying to do that. So can you talk a little bit about the toolbox project and maybe how listeners can maybe get involved or promote these concepts in their own school districts?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. So what the, the, um, it's now been rebranded. Oh cool. <laughs> um, the the Michigan Skills Project. Um, um, just for some trademark stuff um, that that I never imagined being <laughs> being involved in. But <laughs> go figure. Um, so um, basically what we're doing is we're trying to take well, we've taken what we know about the science of self-control, of how to manage our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And we've converted it into a curriculum uh, that can be taught in middle and high schools. And what we're about to do in a couple of weeks, we're about to start this, to launch the, the massive clinical trial with about 10,000 students is um, we're going to be teaching students this curriculum. Uh, half of the, the students in a school district in Georgia will be randomly assigned to this curriculum. Another half will be assigned to learn about something else. And what we want to know is two things. One. Can students learn this information in the context of a, of a class course? We have some pretty good pilot data suggesting that the answer to that question is yes. But then the next bigger question is, does learning about this information actually have um, um, impact on Kids' ability to perform, their relationships, their well-being, and so we'll be tracking students over time after they go through the curriculum to see how it affects their lives, and and that's something that we're really excited about. I I, I fervently do believe that we should be teaching um, the world really about how this works. Um, really, because I think knowing about how the human mind works is just a really important. Um, an important topic from a pedagogical perspective. I, I often joke that, you know, I spent, for some reason, I, I, I often think back to like human biology, which I learned about in junior high school and, uh, in high school. Like I took multiple classes on this. They were required. And for whatever reason, the, the topic that stands out to me is the digestive system. I remember learning about peristalsis, for example, it was mind blowing. Wow. How does food get from one hole down to the other? Like <laughs> peristalsis, super cool. Like I'm learning about the human body, but, but ask me how many occasions in my adult life or even in my adolescent life, have I had to use that information in my life? Um, there've actually been two instances, both of which involve my, my kids, not to get into any gory detail, both of them independently asked me at some point, daddy, how can I swallow food upside down? And and that was, that was the moment. Yes. Peristalsis. Peristalsis. Right. There it goes. Right. But now let's think about, let's think about things like how do you regulate? How do you manage your anger? How do you make yourself happier? How do you control your anxiety? These are topics that I would argue we grapple with on a daily basis. So why aren't we doing everything we can to teach kids, to teach adults, to teach everyone, about how the mind works when it comes to these phenomena, right? We don't have to make judgments here. This is just basic biology. It's basic science. Here are the nuts and bolts that explain it all. So, um, so this project is an attempt to start doing that. Um, the book Chatter was a big attempt to do that as well. Uh, if folks want to get involved and if um, they're interested in helping in this plight, you know, the first thing you could do is just learn about this information yourself and share it with other people. I think that's that's a really easy thing, a really easy way all of us can make a difference in this regard. And um, if you want to get involved more in some of the learning about some of the, the work in this Michigan skills project, we'll be posting updates as the study progresses on my website. And, and you could check in there. And And if this is, if this project is successful, um, what we're, the hope is to make these curricula that we've, we spent the last five years developing multi-million dollar effort. Um, we're going to make it just freely available for, for districts, um, anywhere to download and use. And so, um, so hopefully we get to that point soon.
0: That's so exciting. And we will post the link to Ethan's website in the show notes. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. I want to thank you for writing the book. For the research you're doing, for your contribution to society and the greater good, uh, we're, we're, we should all be appreciative. And I just really enjoyed spending time talking with you. Likewise.
2: Um, thanks for the opportunity to connect. Um, and I, I really am um, grateful for the opportunity to, to speak to your listeners. And, and um, it was great fun. All
0: right. Thanks, Ethan. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to another episode of The Burleson Box, where we bring you and your team leaders... Into the conversation with today's best authors and business leaders. If you enjoyed today's program, be sure to share us with a friend or colleague. You can visit theburlesonbox.com and sign up to receive my monthly reading list, study guides for each of the books and authors we interview, or you can call us at one 800 891 7520 and discuss how a Burleson Box membership, monthly coaching, or annual leadership conference can work for you and your team be sure to listen each month for new resources we can help you and your employees serve your patients with excellence until next time remember the words of charlie munger who said in my whole life i have known no wise people over a broad subject matter who didn't read all the time none zero Go make it a great month, and I'll see you right here next time on The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972 203 6960. Or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.